we are going to tackle an entire chapter of Scripture tonight. Yeah, you should laugh. So, my, my comfort zone, a little bit of autobiography here, is like two verses. Like, I like to tackle two verses in 45 to 53 minutes. Uh, a chapter is very challenging to me. And so, I do have like 20 pages of notes, but I'm going to say those 20 pages prayerfully in like 45 minutes. So, uh, let's, let's move into Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we are traveling through the book of Genesis, and we are taking a high-level view, which is why we're going to tackle an entire chapter tonight. Uh, the gospel-centered community discussion guides are coming around right now. These are good notes for you to go further in the text, more detail, uh, and, and they're fantastic for you to study from throughout the week and to use in your groups. The title of this message is simply The First Sin and the First Gospel. The First Sin and the First Gospel. And this is the chapter where everything goes bad. Uh, if you want to take a very macro view of the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation, you could do it in four stages. You could say uh, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Uh, theologian, pastor, author, professor, Tony Marita would add actually a, another stage in there that I think is an important stage. And that would come right in Genesis 3 as stage 2 would come in 3. And it would go like this. Creation, fall, promise of redemption, redemption, recreation. And so in this text, you're, you're going to see the fall of humanity, the cursing of the entire universe, but then the first promise of redemption. So it, it is a bad chapter and it's a good chapter all in the same uh, 24 verses. So let's jump right in. Uh, I, I can't tackle everything, obviously, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna tackle certain things. This is not the first time we've been in Genesis 3. Over the past eight years, we've been in Genesis 3 50 times. It's maybe an exaggeration, but uh, I'm going to highlight things in this message that we've not talked about before. So if you wish I would dig into other parts, there are a lot of sermons online that we dig into Genesis 3 in different ways. So I'm going to read 1 to 7, and we'll jump in. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Now, it's important there that that you, which is why I put this in the notes here, in Hebrew is plural. Uh, you, like both of you. Interesting. Like you all. And there's only two people, so <laughs> it's Adam and Eve. Uh, did God actually say you too? shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now we know this is, is the case because look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise or give insight, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was right there with her. Did God say to you, plural, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was able, was to be desired to make one wise or give insight, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves 
loincloths. Now, the first question that you should be thinking when you read Genesis 3.1 is, where did this serpent come from? Like, now the serpent, out of nowhere, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Like, where's this serpent coming from? And here, what we have is the first mention in God's revelation of personified evil. Uh, We know him as the devil, Satan, the adversary, the accuser. And this is his first appearance. uh, And you have to go through the rest of scripture to kind of get his his backstory, which we're not going to do tonight. But like a good movie, he just shows up and we're left wondering, who is this and why is he trying to contradict God and why is he trying to tempt our first parents? And he's just thrown out there. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the crafty nature of this serpent Uh, is seen in that he is very wise in a dark sense, very trickery-like, very sly and cunning, very deceptive and manipulative. And there is debate, just like every verse in the Bible has a debate about it. There's a debate as to whether this was actually a snake in which Satan somehow possessed and was talking through the snake, you know, kind of took over its faculties and was somehow speaking out of it. And before you think that's such a ridiculous idea, uh, it does happen later in the scriptures through Balaam's donkey. You remember? Who speaks through, uh, or rather, the the animal is given capacity to speak. And so it's not like in, in the Bible, animals have not spoken in any other place. Okay, they have. And so it is possible that Satan, I think, could inhabit a snake and somehow talk through it. If he's able to inhabit a higher being uh, like the demoniac in Mark chapter five and speak through him and speak to Jesus using his vocal cords, could not he do the same with a snake? I don't see why not. If, if an image bearer is a higher being than a beast of the field, then to me, it seems logical that Satan could do that. However, another interpretation would be this. This is simply a serpent-like creature, a metaphor for sly, cunning, hiding, striking, venomous. When you see snakes in the Bible, uh, they are not cast in a positive light. Uh, In fact, in Romans 3, when uh, Paul is trying to show that all are sinners and all are under sin, uh, Paul says, the poison of vipers is under our lips or asps, as one translation has it. Now, our own um, theologian here, Pete Rue, uh, was questioned during one of his earlier sermons on YouTube, uh, like, so why did God curse the snake when the snake didn't do anything? Like, trying to stick up for the snake, like, why? And I was like, Pete, that's your question. I'm not answering that one. And, And so I... I tracked down the answer and I copied and pasted it for you. And I think it's a great answer. So I'm going to quote Pete Rue in a sermon. I think it's the first time I've ever done this, but he deserves to be quoted here. Ready? Here's what he said to our friend on YouTube. He said, ultimately, Genesis 3 is not meant to be a zoology lesson. (laughs) Amen. Or, Or instruct us about the animal kingdom. It seems likely based on the context and structure of the chapter that this was not a literal snake speaking to Eve. Rather, this was Satan based on the Hebrew word used to describe the serpent and the context. Passages in Isaiah and Revelation would support Satan being the serpent as well. So God's curse is not on an animal, but it is on Satan and it is not literal but it is figurative to highlight God's victory over Satan, Genesis 3.15, and Satan's humiliation in defeat, eating dust and crawling on his belly. So you'll, you'll see that as an option in your guide. Uh, there's, there's the three major options in here. Don't read it right now. Listen to me. But later, later, check it out in the study guide. It's very interesting, okay? 
uh, demonology and Satanology. It's, it's, it's fascinating, okay? And, and we are sometimes unhealthily drawn to it. But what you need to know here is crafty. That's the emphasis here. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Um, Satan does show up as a serpent or a dragon in Scripture. I'm just going to show you two. Uh, in Revelation 12, 7 to 9, uh, war arose in heaven. Michael, who is the chief angel, he's the chief archangel, arch, like arch enemy chief. Uh, Michael, the archangel, and his angels, so he has uh, angels under him who report to him, like military uh, ranks, they fought against the dragon. So the dragon here is Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back. So again, now this is some backstory here to Satan. Satan also has angels. These are what we call demons. They are people without bodies. They are wiser than us. Uh, they have been observing humans since the beginning. And they probably know you better than you know yourself because they've seen you a thousand times. Okay? And they know just how to tempt you with your personality and your background and your likes and dislikes and your triggers. They're very crafty in their father's image, if I could say that. And so here, the dragon and his angels are warring with the chief angel, the good angel, and his armies. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So this is a coup in heaven Satan and his angels trying to usurp God and take over heaven. Not happening. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. Now listen to how he's described. That ancient serpent. What do you think that's pointing at? Genesis 3.1. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. And we're going to get into that in a minute. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Yes, the whole earth is populated with demons and Satan. This is fantastic. Okay? Here's one more place. Revelation 20, 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, in Greek, the word is abyss. Uh, when I just got to tell this story. When I was a kid, uh, the translation we used in my church was the bottomless pit. And I would try to imagine these things as a kid, literally. And I would have nightmares about falling into the bottomless pit and not stopping. It would just go on. Like it was a nightmare that lasted, seemed like for eternity. And I would just fall and fall and fall. And it was black and dark. And it was frightening as a kid. And I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, I'm not in the bottomless pit. You know, God, please, I repent, like save me. You know, it was, it was very effectual uh, to scare the hell out of me, literally. Like I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to go to the abyss. And I would dream about it falling and falling through the bottomless pit. Parents, don't do that to your kids. Like don't, don't frighten them. You want to go to the abyss? Huh? And the great chain, and the great chain, Okay, so what does he have? He has in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. He can unlock it or he can lock it. And he has a great chain in his hand, this massive angel with a great key and a great chain. And he sees the dragon. Who is that? That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Now, by the way, volumes have been written on that sentence. What is the thousand years? Okay. We're not going to talk about that right now. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, locked it so that he might not deceive. There it is again, the deceiver. He might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And so here we see two passages in Revelation. This serpent is the devil. He is the great dragon. He is the deceiver. He is the deceiver of the nations. And he is seeking to deceive and tempt our first two parents. And let's jump to how Eve responds to Satan. Let's jump there for a minute. He says, did God actually say... You shall not eat of the tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, two things real quick. Number one, Satan wants to put God in a bad light here, and here's how he's doing it. God is oppressing you. He's stamping out your freedom. Did God really say you can't? He's withholding from you some good thing. Meanwhile, think about this, okay? There's an entire globe and, and really thick, rich garden, and they can eat from any tree. Just one, they can't. So there's one law tree in a massive grace world, in a massive grace garden, and Satan goes right in there to the one restriction, and he's like, God is oppressing you. He's an evil being who doesn't want good for you. He wants to squash your happiness and joy. He is not for your freedom. He is for your entrapment. Okay, that's all implied there. Number two, it's interesting that he goes after Eve who did not have the direct command. Okay, so if we were to go to Genesis 2, like Justin preached last week, this is pre-Eve. This is before Eve was created. God says to Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And interestingly, we don't know if Adam like gave a further restriction to Eve and said like, look, that tree, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it. Just leave it alone. Okay, maybe. I do that to my kids. I'm like, you know what? Just don't go near it. Just don't touch it. Maybe he did that. We don't know. Or maybe she thought, I'm just not going to touch it. We can use a little bit of imagination here, I think. Okay? At least I'm going to. Here's, here's what I think. The Bible is very limited in what it reveals to us. Often conversations are squashed into a few verses, and we know that they took way more verses. Hey, like think of John chapter three, the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus. If that was literally all they talked about, they had a one minute conversation. It was like, all right, I'll see you later. <laughs> I doubt it. Like, like Paul at Mars Hill giving his sermon. Like it, it's, a, it's a two minute sermon. I doubt it. Okay? it. The Bible is very limited and it gives us only what we need to know. So could this have happened? Maybe. I don't know. So don't take this as God's word. This is my imagination. Perhaps Satan said, Look, come here, touch the tree. We shall not even touch it. Well, come here, touch it. Look, I'm touching it. I'm fine. Come here, touch it. It's, it's like, you, you, ever, you ever have a, a salesman who's really good and they have the product and then eventually it gets into your hand somehow and you're like, how did you get this in my hand? And now they're like, you know you want that and they're kind of backing up. Right? That's what, that's what I think Satan's doing here. He's like, come here and touch it. Look at it. And I think she probably touched it. And he's like, see, you're not dead. Look at that fruit. Doesn't that look amazing? And she looks at it. That does look amazing. You should touch it. If I touch it, I'll die. I'm touching it. I'm fine. You should touch it too. And probably she touched it. And what didn't happen? Well, we know that's what eventually happened because sin didn't happen until what? They ate. Okay? And so maybe he had it in her hand for a while before she even considered. We don't know. Maybe. But Satan is crafty. And here he says to her, look, you're not going to die. That's a direct contradiction of what God said. You should disbelieve God and you should believe me. You should put faith in my word and you should distrust God's word. Does he not do the same to us all the time? You should listen to me. Why are you listening to God? And so here, I think we can make some application. These are very crafty and subtle ways that Satan also tempts us. Subtle and crafty suggestions, if you will. Look at the attractiveness of this forbidden thing. Like, doesn't it look good? 
lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Like, look at it. Stare at it. Don't look away. Doesn't that look good? God just doesn't want you to be happy. I want you to be happy. I am for you doing this forbidden thing because it's going to make you happy. But God is against you in this forbidden thing. No one will ever know. Only you. Only you will know. No one will ever know. How about this one? You can always repent and ask for forgiveness later. That will never get used on you. I mean, just do it. You can always ask for forgiveness. You know God's going to forgive you. Just do it. How about thinking and fantasizing about it is totally different than doing it. Getting it all up in your imagination, massaging it into your imagination. James tells us about this, doesn't he? In the progression of sin until death comes. You don't deserve to live like this. You deserve more and better. You do deserve this. Take that forbidden thing. And on and on, I could give you the ways Satan tempts us. And so for Eve, he's saying, look, you're, you're not going to die. And here's, here's the, the attractive bit of temptation. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Then you're going to be like God. In what way? You're going to know good and evil, just like God. God is on another level with knowledge. He knows intimately both good and evil, and you don't. You only know this good world, and he is withholding from you secret wisdom, secret knowledge, and you can have this secret knowledge and wisdom. And he knows that if you eat from this tree, you're going to have it, and he doesn't want you to have it. You're going to know good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, it was attractive and it was something good to eat, and it was desired to make one wise. I can have this wisdom. Uh, You could translate that to give insight. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, (laughs) and he ate. And then verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. Instantly, boom, their eyes are opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happens? They fall for the temptation, both of them. They believe and trust in Satan's word over God's word. They disobey and now something has changed in them. What has changed? Sin and the knowledge of evil has entered them. They have transgressed, they have sinned against God, and now the fruit of that is dawning upon them. They look at themselves, they had, in a sense, no self-consciousness about their nakedness, but now all of a sudden, they they have fear, shame, and guilt, and they want to hide. They had complete intimacy with each other and with God and with the rest of creation, and now they want to cover up and hide. Okay, And then this is what continues in the next verse. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, what happens here is God comes walking and pursuing them relationally, assuming like he always had. There's no reason to think this is the first time he's entered the garden, Uh, He probably was in fellowship with them regularly, teaching them about himself and his creation, giving them insight into the world he had made. And what are they doing? They are hiding again. They're hiding from each other. They're hiding from the rest of creation. And now they're hiding from God. Okay. This is what sin does. Now, I I really appreciate uh, two pastor authors named Rich Plass and James Cofield. How many of you read the Relational Soul book? Let me see hands. One, two, two, three, three. Okay. This is a great book. Uh, Here's why this is a great book. It takes a look at what sin does to us relationally. Now, notice in the text here, they're hiding from each other. 
Like there's barriers between husband and wife here. There's barrier now between God and his creation and the relationships are severed. They are broken. They are hiding from God. And so uh, Rich Plass and James Cofield have written this book called The Relational Soul. And I just want to read a few paragraphs about this text here. Listen, as bad as it was for Adam and Eve, the truly scary thing was they could not pull themselves out of the mess that they had made. They cast the die for themselves. They cast the die for us as well. And they cite Romans 5.12, which is uh, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death spread to all men because all sin. Experience shows that mistrust now infects our relational capacity. Mistrust. Not completely, but certainly significantly. Like Adam and Eve, we experience exaggerated shame, fear, and guilt that flow from mistrust. But we are not just victims of our first parents. We are perpetrators as well. Like them, we insist on doing life our way. Like them, we ignore the source of love and life. We mistrust the goodness of God. The Apostle Paul summarizes the human condition this way. Romans 3.23, For everyone has sinned. We all have fallen short of God's glorious standard. In the New Testament, sin is not merely an individual, privatized transgression of a moral standard. Sins, plural, is typically used for specific transgression. But they're saying sin, singularly, is not. It is far more radical than that. Sin is a mistrustful state of being that moves us from communion to alienation by means of disobedience and pride. Scripture uses the term rebellion to designate this state of being. Rebellion focuses on a reaction to a prescribed code of conduct. Indeed, we have all rebelled against God's holy law. The term reactive nuances how rebellion expresses itself in our relationships. A reactive state of being is like a virus infecting every relationship. It is like cancer wreaking havoc on the relational core of our very being. Because of its reactivity, we fall short in our capacity for communion in profound ways. In fact, our communion experience is now restricted and ruptured. It's bruised and broken because of this reactive mistrust of God and others. And I think here this is insightful. This takes a look at what sin does to how we respond to each other in intimacy. Okay? Now, the most intimate relationship that human beings should have is with God. God's always your top-tier relationship. Yet... How many of us often just feel, yes, I have this fantastic, close, intimate relationship with God, my Father? Probably not. Most of us struggle to have a relationship with God that is consistent and loving, and we really feel, like in the emotions, that we are close to God and He is close to us. Why? Sin. I've done enough marriage counseling to know that there are no healthy marriages in the sense of we don't fight, we don't disagree, we don't argue, we don't ever go to bed with our backs facing each other, we don't ever call each other nasty names. Every, every married couple does, right? And then prayerfully, we are gospeled married couples and we repent and we ask for forgiveness and then we reconcile and we move forward to sin against each other the next time, Right? And, and, and prayerfully, as we mature and progress, we sin against each other less. That's, that's what Jesus does to us. But the point here is, those are the, the primary top two relationships that we have as human beings. One God, second is our spouse. What's the third? If you're blessed enough to have kids, how's the parent and kid relationship going? Well, I'll tell you what, I want to throw my kids out the window almost every day. It's a good thing that mattress is soft, right? 
pile drive, suplex, like the 80s wrestlers. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much. <laughs> right? My, the kids drive us insane. If you're a parent and you're honest, your kids drive you nuts, right? And then at some point it clicks in and it's like they move to a lower level of depravity, but not actually. It's just they mature a bit, okay? A bit. And, and, and there are no healthy in the sense of parents don't fight with kids, kids don't disobey the parents. Um, I'm going to blow my son's whole world up just for a second. He's four. He won't mind. So he gets, he gets a report from school, like he's in preschool, right? And he's four. And he gets a report card home. And the report card says something like this. Israel likes to tell stories that he wish were true. <laughs> like, I was just at Disney World yesterday. And today, in January, we're going to Kennywood. Right? Like, and, and this is what kids do. Like, I never taught him to lie. Like, I, I never taught him how to deceive people. Listen, buddy, here's how you do it. If you want to be really good, no, he just automatically knows how to do that. And he's just a terrible liar at four. But when he keeps practicing, when he's about 13, 14, 15, 16, he'll be good. He'll be deceiving people left and right, including me, right? Because he's a sinner in need of a savior, right? Uh, this could be illustrated this way. Uh, young kid, four or five, you know, hey, we're cooking dinner. You leave the snack drawer alone. Okay. And you go in the other room and, you know, you're checking your phone, you're on Facebook or whatever, you're on Instagram. And all of a sudden you look at the child and because they're not so swift and crafty like Satan, there's like cookie and chocolate all over the face. Yo, did you raid the snack drawer? Mm, no, you didn't. I, I, no. Meanwhile, the evidence is like falling. What's that on your face? Nothing. Nothing to see here, you know, like keep moving. This is what kids do. Like they disobey and then they lie their way out of it. And what parent in their right mind taught that to their kids? The answer is no one did. They know how to do that. They need to be taught not to lie. Kids need to be taught over and over and over. You tell the truth, right? And what happens if parents don't teach the kids to tell truth? Then they grow up and they become fantastic liars, manipulators, little vipers that get big. And Paul would say, oh no, you're a big viper. The poison of asps or vipers is under their lips. And he's talking about all of us. Okay. And, and that's just one illustration. We could go on and on and on. But the idea here is we are broken from our first parents. And as Adam and Eve sinned and they had children, sin entered through the male seed and it has progressed until today. And it's in you and I. It's in you and I. Let's keep going. They're hiding from God and verse nine, God comes looking for them. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself hiding from God. He, God said, great question. Who told you you were naked? have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, this is amazing. In weddings, I always quote Genesis 2 at the end. And when Adam first sees Eve, you know what happens? It's a love song in the Hebrew. It's poetry. It's the first poetry in the Bible. It's a love. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Sin enters the world. Look at this. What did you do? The woman you gave me. Now, now it's deeper than it looks. Remember, Adam was told, in the day you eat of it, what's going to happen? Kill her. Not me. Man, that's serious. Take her life from poetry to give her the death sentence, not me. That's what sin does. And so you can see, man, it goes really bad for them. The first couple, naked, in paradise, not afraid, not ashamed to 
kill her, not me. Hiding from God, hiding from each other, blame shifting, and Eve does the same thing. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Now, there is a sense in which he's also like aiming at God. You gave me. Like if you didn't put her here in the first place, I wouldn't be in this mess. That's there. And we do that. Let's be honest. Especially we who have a, a strong view of God's sovereignty. We're like, God, you, you could get me out of this. Or you put me in this. And it's not in a lamentful way. It's in a how could you. Right? We, we do this. We do the same thing. So let's not just say, oh, you evil Adam and Eve. Let's look at ourselves in the mirror. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She also blame shifts. Okay? His fault, not mine. The serpent. And, and for some of us, we're like, well, that's true. Like, it's really not their fault. And th this is our, our jacked up fallen logic, right? Because in our logic, we always justify ourselves and we find someone else to blame. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Yeah, I got angry and I broke some stuff and I said things I shouldn't, but if they wouldn't have set me off, right? We do this all the time. If they wouldn't have cut me off, I wouldn't have yelled profanities out the window and gave them a hand gesture. <laughs> if they wouldn't have just cut me off, it's not my fault. It's their fault. You know, I have a kind of aggressive, angry disposition, but my parents, man, not my fault. And we do this again. And again. Now, now there is some nuance to that. Okay. Like I'm a biblical counselor. There is some nuance to parents shaping us and our, our environment shaping us. But there are two camps. If I could be real simplistic, two camps, one would say it's all personal responsibility. Everything's on you has nothing to do with environment and upbringing. And then the other camp would say, it has nothing to do with you. You're the victim. Everyone else is to blame. All environment, all culture, you're off the hook. You're a victim. Both are equally wrong. And it's somewhere in the middle. That's the truth. We are profoundly shaped by our culture and our home life and how we were treated and the experiences. That's true. But we also are to blame and we need to own our stuff. And here's the, here's, the, here's the good news. When you actually own your junk, you know what can happen? It can change. But if you never own it, it's like, hey, it's not my fault, not me. It's never going to change. So a good gospel insight is this. If you, if, 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 even if it's your spouse and they're telling you again, and you just want to give it to them, right? Maybe there's actually something there of substance that you should consider because perhaps it could be the spirit through your spouse, even if they're saying it in a negative way, pointing out something that's actually there. Okay, we automatically, we justify ourselves. This is what sin does. It justifies the self, it blames others, and it doesn't want to take responsibility. This is what sin does, friends, and it's in you and it's in me. I know this experientially, okay? And it works the same way with sin. We sin, and then we're like, well, this is why, and then we have all these self-justifications. It's really not that bad. It's really not my fault. And the truth is, if we would simply own it, if we would just own it, man, we could change. That's the first step to change and transformation. Uh, and, and this is what Adam and Eve won't do. Notice, they won't own it. Not my fault, her fault. Not my fault, serpent's fault. And yet, I wonder how the story might have been different if they would have said, if Adam would have been like, yeah, you're right, I did it. I deserve death. Just kill me. Let's get it over with. You know, if he'd owned it and confessed and repented and said he was wrong and maybe even asked for mercy, what would have happened? I don't know. It's not what happened. And so the next verse, verse 14, uh, no, that should not be yet. So we'll come back to that in a minute. That's out of order. The next verse says, the Lord God said to the serpent, notice he doesn't say, Hey, Satan, what, what were you thinking, man? He's like, no, you're in trouble. 
And so what happens? The Lord says to the serpent, because you have done this, okay? And we're going to stop there. We're going to skip that. And we're going to go to the wife first. We'll come back to 14 and 15. But I want to start at verse 16 here. So God is now going to, and he's dealing with reverse order, okay? Not my fault, woman's fault. Woman, not my fault, snake's fault. Starts with the snake, then goes to the woman, and Adam will be last. And so to the woman, verse 16, he said, now God is going to dish out punishment. We call it curse, the curse, okay? To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay? Couple things here very quickly. Number one, kind of obvious, only women can have children. It's just the way God made it. Okay? And that is a gift and not a curse. Okay? When God gave the original command before the curse, he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Populate this whole globe with image bearers. That's what I want you to do. And that can only happen through women. And the assumption here is that before the fall or without sin, women would have given birth to children without pain. No epidurals, no C-sections, just maybe it would have been. <laughs> and, and so here, the very thing that God gave as a command for Eve to accomplish is now cursed. The very thing she was told to do, be fruitful and multiply. You fill this earth with image bearers. You subdue it through those image bearers. Now this very thing that she's supposed to do is going to war against her and be really painful. And if we could jump to chapter uh, four, which I won't because Pete's going to tackle that next week, children bring parents so much pain because you know what happens to the first two brothers? One kills the other one. Murder in chapter four. First two human beings after Adam and Eve. What happens? They kill each other. It's not good. Okay? And so here he says, look, in pain, you're going to bring forth children, verse 16. And then the second part of the curse is actually very interesting. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. One translation, I think wrongly translates it. Your desire will be for your husband. And the husbands are like, that sounds like a great curse. <laughs> fantastic right but that doesn't that interpretation doesn't make sense because look at what will will be the result but he shall rule over you he shall rule over you now the idea here is before the fall adam and eve would have been in harmony okay and remember the order god creates adam first and then as justin so well preached last week Eve was made as a helper fit for him, right? And, and remember, God is called our helper, same word in the, the Old Testament as well. So it's not lower women, higher men. It's just, this is the role that God has assigned. The man was supposed to lead and the woman is supposed to aid or help or come alongside and assist, okay? Now, what happens here? She is being cursed with what? wanting to take the wheel. That's what the curse is. Contrary to his leadership, contrary to his role, she wants to take over. That's part of the curse. This is in part why marriage is so hard. It really is. And, and it takes the gospel and the Holy Spirit to see this thing reversed. Now, there is this same word and phrase in chapter four. Pete will get into this next week. I'm not going to unpack it. But this is between Cain and Abel. And you remember Cain kills Abel. And this is what God says to Cain. He knows it's brewing in his heart. He knows he wants to murder his brother. He knows he's angry. And God warns him. He's like, look, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Like, do the right thing and I'll accept you. And if you do not do well, listen to this. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
So sin wants to take over Cain, and God says, you need to master and rule over it. What's the curse on the woman? Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but in response, what's he going to do? He will rule over you harshly. Thus abuse. Thus not caring about emotions. Thus, I just wish you were out of my life. Thus divorce. Thus, and we could go on and on, right? This is the curse on marriage. Now again, it's not hopeless because in Christ, this thing reverses and we have Ephesians 5, 21 through the end of the chapter. And that is the good news that the gospel comes in to reverse the curse. And we don't have time to unpack that, but there are two messages I would point to if you want to uh, go to those. Number one would be a message in Ephesians 5, starting at 22, that I preached in the Ephesians series. Go to eternalcity.org, sermons, listen. Justin preached a great message on gender roles in the uh, Theology Untangled series. So if you want more on that, because I'm moving past it right now, go to listen to those two sermons in particular, and it will unfold that idea and concept uh, for about two hours, okay? So go back, listen to those on your own. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now for Adam... What was he given to do? Cultivate the garden, work it, make it produce, like the produce section at your grocery store, make it produce. And now where the ground would cooperate with him, now it's going to war against him. In order to get it to produce food, it's going to fight him. It's going to grow weeds. Animals are going to attack the good stuff and weeds are going to choke the good stuff. And it's going to be barely impossible uh, without modern technology and modern farming to get stuff positive to grow and you actually be able to. How many of you have actually had a successful garden? A successful one. Okay, Eric's the only one. How many of you have had tried and had an unsuccessful garden? Yeah, me too, right? It's like I had one tomato, man. And the locust got it. <laughs> Dang, maybe it was my dog. I don't know. But the idea is like, can nothing go well here? Like, I, how many of you are landscapers? At least you try to be, right? And how many of you love weeding? It's like the best thing ever, right? You spend 20, come to my house, Fran, please. If that's real and you're not being sarcastic, <laughs> I welcome you to come to my home. I'll buy you pizza, make you great coffee. It'll be awesome. I'll get you some gloves. <laughs> You buy mulch, right? And you spend tons of money on mulch. And then within like two weeks, what's happening? The weeds are attacking the mulch, coming through the mulch. And it's like, what did I do this for? You know, why did I just, just let it go up? Let it be a field. I don't care, right? And you just give up because the curse is so pervasive, right? What happens if you, how many of you have seen that old movie with Will Smith, I Am Legend? You ever see that? It's a good movie, right? They should make a part two, I think. Anyway, what happens when a city gets left with no people in it? I think they did a good job. Trees start growing out of the pavements, like animals are on the loose in the wild. Like this is the curse. Okay? You better not go into the woods by yourself without some kind of weapon deep into the woods because there's wolves and there's bears and there's snakes and there's all kinds of things that could harm you. Okay. Now I do like the woods. I mountain bike. I go in without a weapon. I know I'm dumb. I'll probably get eaten and Eddie, do my funeral, okay? But the idea is it's, it's, it's not as safe as it once was to venture off into the woods, right? This is why all the fairy tales were created to keep kids uh, afraid of the woods, right? They would tell scary stories about the woods because they're cursed and there's mean, evil, hungry things in there. And that's in part true, right? The world is not a safe place now that we live in a cursed world earth. And I'm out of time, so I got to move. I'm sorry. I got four more verses. Five. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So, so now he's taking care of them, okay? He is, all right, there's these fig leaves. That's not going to work, man. You take one walk through the jaggers. Yes, I'm a Pittsburgher. Through the thorns, and it's going to tear them leaves all up, man. That's not going to work, okay? You need some tough leather pants. You need, you need the good stuff. You need a leather jacket, bro. Okay. So he hooks them up. Literally. He makes for Adam and, and his wife, Eve garments of skins. What is that? That's leather. And he gives them some tough garments that won't wear out. And he clothes them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Who is the us? I would argue it's the Trinity. It's God speaking amongst himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This happens in chapter one. Let us make man in our image. Okay. The man has become like us in what way? Knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, that's interesting. We, I don't have time. But there is a biblical theology of trees in the Bible that we could do. And this tree shows back up in Revelation in the new creation. And, and we'll save that for another sermon. But it's interesting. This is not the only time that the tree of life appears in the Bible. It reappears several times. And it shows up in, in Revelation. And so here, the idea is, if Adam and Eve were to eat somehow from this tree, they would stay in the cursed state and they would live forever cursed. And so it's actually a mercy what God does next. It is a judgment and a mercy at the same time. Therefore, 23, the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east gate of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim, that's a name for an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And it sounds like an Indiana Jones movie, doesn't it? But that's real. That's what happened. Uh, we're going to set an angel here, and we're going to put this death sword. And if the man or any man tries to come in, they're going to be ended so that they don't somehow eat from this tree of life and then live forever. All right, let's finish because Pete's got a Super Bowl to watch. All right. He's already got his phone out. I've been watching him. It's just kidding. He's not doing that. So remember, remember I said I wanted to skip 15. Look, here's 15. The first thing that God does is he curses the snake. Verse 15, actually 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, that means strife. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, in Hebrew that word is seed, singular, your offspring or your seed, and her offspring, he, singular, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this message was called the first sin and the first gospel. This is the first gospel proclamation in the Bible. This is the first promise of another Adam who would not give in to the temptation of Satan. And we see that in the gospels, don't we? Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, and repeatedly he is tempted, and yet what? Does not give in to temptation. Away from me, Satan. And throughout Jesus' three years of ministry on earth and prior 30 years, he did not sin once. He did not fail as Adam did. And in 2 Corinthians, uh, Rather, I'm sorry, in Romans 5, 12 to 21, Jesus is called the second Adam. He, he is the one who comes and has victory in place of Adam. And so there's a few ways we could see the gospel, okay? Number one, this is the cross. The cross is right here. The striking of the heel would be the cross of Christ. 
This is how Satan would ultimately strike the heel of the seed of the woman. He would put Jesus on the cross. And remember, at the Last Supper, Satan is about to go and uh, stir up the crowds and stir up the chief priests, and he enters Judas. You remember that? Literally possesses him. And he goes off and he betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And then he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and identifies him as the one. And Satan is all in that situation. Okay? And Satan thinks he's winning by striking the heel, but truly it is the crushing of the serpent's head because it was our sin that was being put on Jesus on that cross. And Jesus was the one paying for our sin, not his own. He was sinless, yet he decided to be a substitute and die in our place. So did Adam and Eve die? Yes, they did. In fact, Genesis gives the records. Adam was over 900 years old when he died, but he did die. Okay. Jesus died at 33 as a substitute even for believing Adam, who believed that the promise was true that one day the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And we could see the gospel in another place. Did you notice how they don't instantly get killed. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, why didn't they die? Notice there was death, wasn't there? Remember the skins of the animal? That is a sacrifice. They had not seen blood before, and now they have to watch an animal die in their place. The sacrifices were always pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Notice they have to clothe themselves with the skin of the animal to be reminded death, death, death. Jesus literally went and died. Okay. That is really there. And there, there are more ways to see. I mean, the, the gospel is all over here. Here's one more. There's one more. There's more, but I'll do one more. Okay. God comes looking for Adam. Adam where are you? What is this? This is God pursuing his own. This is, there is an elect before the foundation of the world and God will seek them out and he will save them. In fact, uh, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will, will save his people, his people from their sins. And God comes after Adam. Here is uh, Robert D. Bergen. He's an Old Testament scholar and, and commentator. He writes this. God took the initiative in reaching out to sinful humanity. This pattern, humanity sinning, then God seeking out sinners, becomes the primary theme of the rest of the Bible. It is ultimate, its ultimate expression is found in Jesus Christ, who came to seek and save people alienated from God because of their sin, Luke 19.10. In him, God once again walked on earth in search of sinners. The all-knowing God asked Adam, where are you? For Adam's benefit, to encourage Adam to face his sin. And so here's the question for us. Friends, will you face your sin? Will you look at your sin and all of its ugliness and say, yes, own it, and then turn from it and ask the merciful God to have mercy on you and forgive you of all your sins? And you know what the promise is? Anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's the good news, friends is that God didn't leave us in our sin. He didn't leave us in the curse. Jesus came to reverse the curse. In fact, here's one more way we can see the gospel. Notice, thorns and thistles it will produce for you. What was Jesus' crown made of? Literally, he was bearing the curse on his own head while he was being crucified. Okay. And, we, and you could see the gospel over and over in this. Okay? Jesus was taking the curse for us. Galatians, cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree. So here's Jesus taking the curse, hung on a tree, so that we can now break free from the curse. Pete's like, come on, bro, let's go. <laughs> All right. We could go on and on, okay? 
the good news is upon you. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to hear it again and not respond? Are you going to respond? Are you going to ask God to be merciful to you? And if you do, he will. He will save you from your sins. This is the good news. As often as we confess our sins is as often as he will forgive us. He receives us again and again and again. He knows that we will be tempted. He knows that we will fail. And yet he asks us to come to him, confess our sins, and he will forgive us and cleanse us once again. I'm going to pray and we're going to take communion together and remember the seed of the woman who bore our curse who bore our shame, who bore our guilt. So now we don't have to fear God and fear his presence anymore. So let me pray. And after I pray, the communion elements will come around to you. The worship team will come up. Uh, We will sing together one song. And then after we sing, we will all take communion together as one church. Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. We thank you that we are safe in Christ. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave us to our sin. You did not leave us in our mess. You provided a savior. You provided a substitute. You provided your one and only son whom you love. Father, we thank you that you receive all who will believe in the name of Jesus. You receive all who will turn from their sin and ask for mercy and grace. Father, we want to be those who walk by your strength, resisting the devil and watching him flee. Give us grace to do so. Show us the beauty of resisting temptation. Show us the beauty of victory over temptation. Show us the beauty of your word and your promises over the lies and the hiss of the enemy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.